If you could travel anywhere in the world, if you could gain an audience with any living person, where would you go? Whom would you meet? Now, that's the kind of question you can ask perhaps as an icebreaker in a small group or as you're, you're getting to know somebody. Where would you want to go? Who would you want to meet? Because you can figure out a lot about the person, perhaps about their, their social or their, their spiritual longings of who they would want to talk to. Or maybe you would just figure out that that person just wanted a ticket that was going to get them as far around the world as they could go because it's an exotic location or destination that they want. Well, if we were to ask the question here in 1 Kings chapter 10, we would have the Queen of Sheba's answer. If she could travel anywhere, if she could, she could meet anyone, where would she want to go? To Jerusalem, to meet Solomon. And perhaps in her century, that would have been a common answer. Of if you could meet anyone, for who is the greatest, the most famous, the, the wisest of all the kings? Solomon in Jerusalem. And so let's listen to the Word of God. 1 Kings chapter 10. When the Queen of Sheba heard about the fame of Solomon and his relation to the name of the Lord, she came to him to test him with hard questions. Arriving at Jerusalem with a very great caravan with camels carrying spices, large quantities of gold, and precious stones, she came to Solomon and talked with him about all that she had on her mind. Solomon answered all her questions. Nothing was too hard for the king to explain to her. When the queen of Sheba saw all the wisdom of Solomon and the palace he had built, the food on his table, the seating of his officials, the attending servants in their robes, his cupbearers, and the burnt offerings he made at the temple of the Lord, she was overwhelmed. She said to the king, The report I heard in my own country about your achievements and your wisdom is true. But I did not believe these things until I came and saw with my own eyes. Indeed, not even half was told me. In wisdom and wealth you have far exceeded the report I heard. How happy your men must be, how happy your officials, who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Praise be to the Lord your God who has delighted in you and placed you on the throne of Israel because of the Lord's eternal love for Israel. He has made you king to maintain justice and righteousness. And she gave the king 120 talents of gold, large quantities of spices and precious stones. Never again were so many spices brought in as those the queen of Sheba gave to King Solomon. Hiram's ships brought gold from Ophel, and from there they brought great cargoes of almagwood and precious stones. The king used the almug wood to make supports for the temple of the Lord and for the royal palace and to make harps and lyres for musicians. So much almug wood has never been imported or seen since that day. King Solomon gave the queen of Sheba all she desired and asked for, besides what he had given her out of his royal bounty. Then she left and returned with her retinue to her own country. The weight of the gold that Solomon received yearly was 666 talents not including the revenues from merchants and traders and from all the Arabian kings and the governors of the land. King Solomon made 200 large shields of hammered gold. 600 becas of gold went into each shield. He also made 300 small shields of hammered gold with three minas of gold in each shield. The king put them in the palace of the forest of Lebanon. Then the king made a great throne inlaid with ivory and overlaid with fine gold. The throne had six steps, and its back had a rounded top. On both sides of the seat were armrests with a lion standing beside each of them. Twelve lions stood on the six steps, one at either end of each step. Nothing like it had ever been made for any other kingdom. 
All King Solomon's goblets were gold, and all the household articles in the palace of the forest of Lebanon were pure gold. Nothing was made of silver, because silver was considered of little value in Solomon's days. The king had a fleet of trading ships at sea, along with the ships of Hiram. Once every three years it returned, carrying gold, silver, and ivory, and apes and baboons. King Solomon was greater in riches and wisdom than all the other kings of the earth. The whole world sought audience with Solomon to hear the wisdom God had put in his heart. Year after year, everyone who came brought a gift, articles of silver and gold, robes, weapons and spices, and horses and mules. Solomon accumulated chariots and horses. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horses, which he kept in the chariot cities and also with him in Jerusalem. The king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stones, and cedar as plentiful as sycamore fig trees in the foothills. Solomon's horses were imported from Egypt and from Ku. The royal merchants purchased them from Ku. They imported a chariot from Egypt for 600 shekels of silver and a horse for 150. They also exported them to all the kings of the Hittites and the Arameans. This is God's word spoken to us, his church. Let me pray. Father in heaven, we do rejoice in the truth of your word, that your gospel confronts us with our great needs. Lord, we thank you for the, the truths we have proclaimed one to another today of your gospel message that Jesus Christ is our Savior and Rescuer. And so, Lord, I pray that as we listen to your word, we, we would find that truth here as your spirit confronts us and convicts us. Lord, for those that come with questions, may they find answers today. Lord, we, we thank you for your grace and your mercy, and we come praying in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Normally, a queen would send an emissary. She wouldn't go through the trouble of traveling such a great distance herself. She would send a royal official... Perhaps, yes, with the, 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 the camels loaded with gifts. But why would she make such a long and expensive and perhaps dangerous journey? We don't know exactly where Sheba was located in the ancient world, but it was a great distance from Jerusalem, and yet the queen herself comes. And why? Why has she come to Jerusalem? Well, look, look back at verse 1 of our chapter, 1 Kings 10. When the queen of Sheba heard about the fame of Solomon, I mean, he is the most famous king in all the land. His kingdom, this is the, the high point, the pinnacle, the high watermark of the kingdom of Israel. The boundaries are stretched as far as they can go to the very edges of the promise God gave in the, in the scriptures. There is peace on all the borders. There is unimaginable, incomparable wealth here in this kingdom. She's heard of his fame. But, but how does verse 1 continue? And his relation to the name of the Lord. Not only is he famous and powerful, but he is related to Yahweh, this covenant God of the people of Israel. And so, verse 1 tells us, she came to test him with hard questions. Questions that were answerable by Solomon. And so we, we see that this queen, this queen of Sheba is the the, the healthiest kind of skeptic. She has serious and difficult questions, but she comes expecting answers. 
Now, you might think, well, of course, anyone who asks a question is looking for an answer, right? But there are lots of ways we use questions that have no expectation of any answer being given. I, I grew up in a household where I'm not sure I ever heard a direct command from my mother. Every command was given in this way. Kevin, would you like to take out the trash? Now, the smart aleck in me would respond with, well, no, I don't want to take out the trash, but since it really wasn't a question, it was a command disguised as a question, as if my, my desire to do it had any relevance on it, I'll take out the trash. Because sometimes it's not really a question. Or sometimes you've, you've sat in a classroom, perhaps, where you had a, a classmate who asked a question not to get an answer, but just to showboat, to just say, look at how smart I am. You bozos, you're not even smart enough to think of a question that's this good. And not only that, I am so smart that this poor professor standing at the front of the room probably won't even be able to answer my genius question. See, some questions we, we really don't want answers. Or perhaps, when you wrestle with the big questions, the questions that there would have been the kinds of questions the Queen of Sheba might have brought herself, the kinds of questions that linger throughout all of human history, those questions that, that we look at and say, if, if Yahweh, your covenant God, is so good, then why is there so much pain and suffering in this world? So that's an honest question. But even that kind of question can still be asked in two ways. The healthy way that the Queen asks, where you expect an actual answer, or... And maybe this is the way that you would describe yourself as a skeptic. You use the question not seeking an answer, but you use the question as if, as if you can just toss it out there, drop your mic and walk away, because nobody could answer that kind of question. That question is too big. It is unanswerable. See, sometimes, sometimes we use our skepticism to avoid answers. We, we get ourselves set in our ways as if the questions we have thought of and they are real. The struggles are real the, when, when we come with, with honest questions. But the queen comes as the right kind, an honest skeptic who really wants to understand. I, I read a, a news account this week about Pluto. You know that planet, or maybe it's not quite a planet at the edge of our solar system? Because it was two years ago, I saw, saw NASA, it was, it was two years ago this week that the New Horizons spacecraft flew past Pluto and gave us those, those astounding pictures. You, you saw them, that picture of, of Pluto with its little heart ice cap telling us, I love you, Earth. At least that's how we and some of us interpreted it. But do you know, before that picture was taken two years ago, do you know what the clearest picture we had of Pluto was? Now, you're probably thinking of a picture you saw in your science textbooks as a kid, or you went to, to science fairs and you saw the dioramas with the planets hanging out, and all the way there at the end was Pluto. And so you're thinking, well, what, what did Pluto look like? It, it, and if you go and look at old textbooks, Pluto's all different colors because we had no idea. The only picture that had been taken was a picture from the Hubble telescope, and it doesn't even look like a planet. It is basically like 8 or 12 pixels in varying shades of white and gray. That's all we had. And so the, the, the leader of, of the NASA team that, that sent the spacecraft out, he said, people love exploration. They love it. There's this insatiable desire in us as people to understand and to explore. I mean, he was asked the question, why? Why would you go through all this effort? Why would you do this? But could you imagine if, if, if instead of actually 
if they had just been satisfied with some sort of made-up description, if the, if the picture, now NASA's website nearly got, got crashed two years ago because so many people wanted to see these pictures coming in. We wouldn't have been content with a child's crayon drawing. Because when you ask a question, you actually want an answer. In most areas of your life, you expect a genuine answer. You expect some actual evidence. A real picture of Pluto is what you want. And yet, when we come to spiritual things, we're content to just throw out the question, as if that satisfies our desire for exploration. Now, what would you, what would you need? You would need someone who has been there, someone who has understood the truth, someone who has seen the spiritual truth that, that you're longing for. That's why the queen comes to Solomon. He's famous, he's wise, but, but again, verse 1, he it's because of his relation to the name of Yahweh. It's because he is Yahweh's king, the creator of the universe, the sustainer, the one who loves us and who has made a way for us. Because what's the evidence that she sees? Yes, it's the answers that Solomon gives, but it's, but it's seeing everything that happens in Solomon's kingdom in verses 3, 4, and 5. And, and what's the very last piece of evidence? Look at verse 5. It's she sees the burnt offerings Solomon made at the temple of the Lord. See, she's seen the gospel. Now, she's a pagan Gentile, so she wouldn't have actually walked in through the temple. Of course, she wouldn't have seen it, the, the actual offering being made. She would have seen the preparations. She would have heard from Solomon. This is what it takes as sinners. We come before God and we need a sacrifice to be made for us. See, it's here that the, the promise that was given all the way back in the very first book of the Bible to Abram, the one whom, whom God called, the promise was that, that he would be a blessing to all of the nations. Now we're seeing that, that come true here in Solomon's reign. The queen of Sheba has traveled. She has heard the gospel. And she's responding, the blessing of God is going to the nations. This is the first of the fulfillment. Now, some of us, some of us, when we think about our role in making the gospel known among the nations, we think, well, maybe if I, if I just live a, a life that's, that's nice enough, that's good enough, that, it, that appears to, to show the truth, that, then people will figure it out. They'll kind of figure out, if I, if I just have this lifestyle of Christianity, people will figure it out. Well, here's the problem. I know lots of people who are really nice, who have no religious motivation at all for being really nice. And, yes, do I want you as, as Christians to live as Christians so that your neighbors are better off because you love them and care for them and sacrifice for them? Yes. But then you actually have to explain the gospel to them. Your life might be enough that it, that it will prompt the curiosity of people to ask the question. But when they ask, you have to explain what does it mean to put your trust in the name of the Lord. You have to explain what the sacrifice really is, that there is a greater sacrifice, Jesus himself. See, we have this great treasure. And so we have to explain the gospel message. And so what's the queen's response when she hears this gospel? We see it in verses 6 through 9. She describes the great wisdom that she's now seen it with her own eyes and and. And it's greater than she could imagine. And now look at verse 9. This great, this, this, this declaration of praise. The queen of Sheba, this foreigner who has come and heard the gospel, 
now responds in faith. Look at verse 9. Praise be to the Lord your God, who has delighted in you and placed you on the throne of Israel because of the Lord's eternal love for Israel. He has made you king to maintain justice and righteousness. See, this queen, having seen the gospel, having heard it explained, now puts her trust in Yahweh. She now understands the Lord, Yahweh's eternal love for his people. The truth of the gospel is announced to the nations. The truth itself is the great treasure. Because as the the passage continues, the second half of the the passage shows us this contrast. That that, that in reality, the, the great treasure of the truth of the gospel, when compared with any other treasure, that other treasure will not last. Because what was, the, what was the most often repeated word in the second part? What was the theme of that second half of the chapter? You heard it. Gold. Gold. More gold. So much gold that Solomon, he's fashioning these, these, these shields, not to be used on the battlefield, simply to be stored in, inside the temple, inside the, his palace. He's, instead of just creating blocks, bricks, and, and placing them in Fort Knox, he's, he's creating these shields to keep his treasure. He has unimaginable wealth, incomparable wealth. It's so much so that, that his ivory throne, you don't even see the ivory. We're going to cover it in gold. There's so much gold that silver, we don't even bother polishing the silver. We don't even use the silver. Silver, it's like dirt around here. That's how much gold there is. It's like the stones. If you, you've seen pictures of Jerusalem. The, or if you've walked through the city, everything is built. The, the, the building walls today still re- require some level of limestone to be used in all of the structures. So everywhere you look, it's stone. That's what silver's like. It's as worthless as the pebbles on the ground because there's so much wealth here. Now, the writer of Kings, the, the, the writer of this story, this historical account of, of King Solomon's reign, he echoes the excitement of the Queen of Sheba is he's describing Solomon. Look at, look at the way he describes it in verses 23, 24, and 25. Look at verse 23. King Solomon was greater in riches and wisdom than all the other kings of the earth. The whole world sought audience with, with Solomon. To hear the wisdom God had put in his heart. Year after year, everyone who came brought a gift. I mean, this is a positive endorsement of the greatness, the wisdom, the wealth of Solomon. It's, it's even the fulfillment of the blessing that, that the nations are coming, hearing the gospel, seeing the blessing of God being spread throughout all the world. There is an enthusiasm here that the writer of Kings captures, not just in the Queen's words, but in his own description. But there's also a, a contrast. What was the Queen excited about? Look again at verse 9 the Lord's eternal love. She's thinking of the eternal, everlasting, unending, unstoppable love of God. And then what's the the second half of the chapter? Piles of stuff. Yeah, really shiny, glittery stuff, but just stuff. Solomon has, has more gold than any other king. More wealth. And yet, what are we told right after we hear this this expression of of Solomon's greatness? Look at verse 26. Solomon accumulated chariots and horses. 
describing them, describing where he keeps them. The, again, the description that silver is everywhere. He's importing chariots that are, that are so lavish and expensive that you would never take them out for war. You'd merely use them to parade your greatness. Now, there's a warning here for us in, in Solomon's accumulation of gold, accumulation of, of horses and chariots. Turn with me you know, back to the book of Deuteronomy. This is the fifth book of the Bible, so closer to the front of your Bible than we're, than we're at. This is one of the books that, that Moses wrote. And in Deuteronomy 17, we have a description of how a king should act. Now, we've, we've hinted at this in previous weeks, but I actually want us to look at these verses. Deuteronomy 17. We've just seen Solomon accumulate chariots and horses, accumulate gold. Now listen to the description of, of how a king should act. Deuteronomy 17, verse 14, beginning at verse 14. When you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you, and you've taken possession of it and settled it and say, let us set a king over us like all the other nations around us. Be sure to appoint over you the king the Lord your God chooses. He must be from among your own brothers. Do not place a foreigner over you, one who is not a brother Israelite. The king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. For the Lord has told you, you are not to go back that way again. He must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. Okay, so what are the, what are the three main rules for what, how the king should act? He must not accumulate horses and chariots. He must not accumulate wives. And he must not accumulate gold. What's Solomon doing? Horses and chariots, we're going to see in chapter 11. Lots of wives and lots of gold. Now, to be fair, he's not accumulating all that much silver because it's really not worth anything at all. But don't you see the warning? Solomon has billions. I mean, if you calculate it out, it's, it's almost unfathomable the wealth he has here. The contrast is, is set in our, in our chapter, chapter 10 of 1 Kings, between the eternal love of God and this stuff. How long will it last? Well, for you, only a lifetime. Because it doesn't matter how big your piles of gold are. It doesn't matter if you, like the, the cartoon character Scrooge McDuck, can dive into your pool of gold and swim around in it. It only lasts your lifetime. Yes, maybe your kids or grandkids might be set up well. But how long will Solomon's gold, more gold than anyone else could have ever imagined, how long does it last? We actually don't have to wait very long to figure it out. It's only a few chapters. When you get to chapter 14 and Solomon's son, Rehoboam, has become king after him. This is what we read in chapter 14 of 1 Kings, in the 25th verse. In the fifth year of King Rehoboam, Shishak, king of Solomon, attacked Jerusalem. He carried off the treasures of the temple of the Lord and the treasures of the royal palace. He took everything, including all the gold shields Solomon had made. How long does it last? Five years into his son's reign, and it's all in Egypt. See, the contrast is clear. The eternal love of God is the true 
treasure. Everything else, no matter how big a pile you can make of it, is just stuff. And so don't you see? We're beginning to see the foolishness of accumulating treasure for ourselves, of thinking that if my pile of gold is big enough, then I don't have to worry. You're fooling yourself if you think you can find hope in the gold you pile up. So the only wise thing to do would be to invest that treasure in that which is eternal. To, with generosity, give it away for the sake of God's kingdom. That's what the king of Israel should be doing. Investing the the treasure in the glory of God. That's what he's done in the temple. But not gathering the, the gold for himself, but using it to make the name of the Lord known. Invest in what is eternal. Seek after the true treasure of life. Because it's there when you find that truth that you have the answers to life's most important questions. Now the Queen of Sheba has a lesson to teach us, not merely about international politics, not merely about wealth management, but about eternal treasure, eternal life, a greater treasure. Because we find her again in the New Testament. Turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to fast forward from Solomon's time a thousand years in history to the ministry of Jesus, to Matthew chapter 12. Here, other skeptics, those with questions and doubts, come to Jesus. But unlike the Queen of Sheba, they aren't honest seekers. They aren't those really looking for answers. We're in Matthew 12 and in verse 38. This is what we read about the Pharisees, religious leaders, teachers of the law. They come to Jesus and they say to him, Teacher... We want to see a miraculous sign from you. Now, there's an arrogance here in demanding of Jesus a sign at all. But there's also a foolishness, because all you would have to do is flip back through and read the the earlier chapters of Matthew to see the truth. If you would like a miraculous sign, they are already here. Jesus has already announced to you the truth. And so Jesus calls these, these men who who through this religious facade are coming to challenge him, but without really seeking truth. He says to them in verse 39, again of Matthew 12, a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a miraculous sign, but none will be given except the sign of Jonah. A a reminder that Jesus will rest in the grave for three days. And then in verse 42, Jesus raises the example of our queen, the queen of Sheba. He calls her in verse 42, the queen of the south. Jesus describes her. He says, she will rise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom. And now, one greater than Solomon is here. You see what Jesus is teaching us about the queen of Sheba, the queen who has come from the south. She will stand with the righteous on the day of judgment. On that that day at the end of history when Jesus returns as the king and judge of all the earth, she will stand on the side of the righteous. She is a true believer, one who has genuinely accepted the eternal love of God. But, But she will stand in judgment because everyone who has heard the message of Jesus is in a better position than she was. She had less truth. She had less privilege, less access. And yet, she believed. Jesus is telling those listening to him, you have 
all of the scriptures written down. She had the mere words of King Solomon. You have the whole counsel of God given to you, the truth of the message. She had the words of a great and wise king, but a sinner who needed to bring sacrifice himself. You, Jesus is telling them, have one who stands before you who is greater than Solomon. For what does this king, Jesus, do? Yes, he warns of judgment, but then if you, if you read, and if you still have questions, do that. Read through the end of the Gospel of Matthew this week. Read, see what Jesus has done for you. Jesus, the king who announces judgment, is the king who will take that judgment on himself. He's condemned to die as a criminal, an innocent man, nailed to a cross, his, his life taken from him. What is the charge? That he is the king of the Jews. But that is the true charge, the king who will take your punishment. And so the queen of the south, the queen of Sheba, shows us what it means to seek after truth to ask the hard questions of life, but to, to genuinely listen to the answer. To find the treasure, the treasure of eternal life. And so you have the truth revealed to you. You are in an even better position than the Pharisees of this day of Matthew 12. Why? Because you know the whole story of Jesus. You have seen the great sign that they longed for. The sign of Jonah has been revealed. The king has been raised from the dead. You have the words of Scripture. You are, you are hearing the gospel message now. You are in a position, a much better position than the Queen of Sheba was. But will you be honest and seek the truth? See, Jesus offers the Queen as an example, reminding us of the coming judgment, but, but showing us that he's the king who takes that judgment himself. And so treasure Jesus. Treasure this truth. Put your hope and your trust in him. Jesus is your treasure. The Cambridge University Library holds the, a collection of Bibles from the British and Foreign Bible Society. The collection there at the university includes the first editions of Tyndall's New Testament, the first copies of Scripture translated directly into English. The first Bibles are there, and there in that collection is the Bible of Mary Jones. It's the Bible of a little girl there with these great treasures. Because more than 200 years ago, Mary Jones lived in a valley besides the Cater Idris Mountain in Wales. As a child of eight, she had her set of daily chores, sweeping and scrubbing, digging and weeding, caring for the chickens. Her parents took her weekly to the, to the local church, and at home they would teach her the stories of, of Scripture. But all of those stories had to be told from memory because there was no Bible in their house. They didn't have money for a Bible, and even if they had the money, it would have been hard to find a copy of the Bible in Welsh. Now, Mary loved the Word. She treasured the Gospel. And when a neighbor came to buy eggs, she discovered Mary's longing for the Word of God. And so she told Mary, I have a Bible in my house. When you learn to read, you can come use it whenever you want. Here's a little girl who, who doesn't know how to read and yet loves God's Word. And so, so it's two years of chores and responsibilities before she hears the news that a school is opening for the poor children of the village. And so Mary diligently studies. All the chores are still there before us, all the work of her household. 
diligently study so that she can learn to read. And now every Saturday, she can travel to this neighbor's home and study God's Word. She longs for this treasure so much that, that she doesn't merely go home and repeat the stories from memory. She memorizes the actual words of the Bible. She memorizes it chapter by chapter so that her, her family, her friends, her Sunday school class doesn't just hear about the Bible. They hear the very words of Scripture. And now this girl begins to save. Save money so that she can buy her own Bible. But again, for a poor girl in a village in Wales, it takes her six years. Six years of selling eggs, doing extra chores to, to get enough to purchase a Bible. She knows there's a, a dealer, a distributor of Bibles who, who might have one. Although she's warned they're probably all sold out. But she walks the 25 miles into town to find a Bible. When she gets there, she meets Mr. Charles. And we're told that it is a, a, a breezy spring day in the year of 1800 that Mary Jones began to walk. The bookseller was impressed with her diligence, with her, her passion, her enthusiasm. But he tells her, Mary, there are no Bibles. They've all been sold. I, I have just a couple here, but they've already been paid for. They're already promised to others. There is no Bible for you. And, and Mary, the printer in London, says they're done. There are no more Bibles to be printed in Welsh. And this girl, after years of diligence pursuing this treasure, falls in a chair with hot tears running down her face. Now Mr. Charles has a decision to make. He tells her, my dear child, I see you must have a Bible. It is impossible, yes, it is simply impossible for me to refuse. And so he gives her one of the Bibles already promised elsewhere. Mary takes this treasure home. She pursues it. She teaches Sunday school. She shares the gospel message in her community. But the reason that Mary, Mary Jones's Bible is kept there alongside Tyndall's New Testament is because Mary's story, Mary's passion, Mary's treasure started the Bible Society. When Mr. Charles took the, the story of Mary into London to tell others that there are little girls in Wales who need the Word of God. There were businessmen and women who said, there are little girls around the world who need the Word of God. And so Mary's story launched the British and Foreign Bible Society so that other children in Wales would read the Word, would have their questions answered, would find the true treasure. Is Jesus your treasure? Mary's passion points us to the truth of the gospel. The Queen of Sheba rises to proclaim the eternal love of the Lord. Eternal love, lasting treasure, it's yours through Jesus. 